0: And then when you face the stresses, anything that maybe would upset you or, uh, you know, I'm back on Twitter, so I have that opportunity every five minutes to get upset (laughs) randomly. (laughs) So, you know, then you can just, uh, whatever, step back and this is not my problem. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast.
1: Hey everyone and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, Andrew is away today at a work conflict, but uh, joining us today is a returning guest and uh, someone who I was uh, jokingly saying that we probably mention his name <laughs> every other episode, if not a little bit, a little bit more frequently, is uh, founder of HRV for Training, Marco Altini. So folks, uh, if you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you know that Marco was, as I mentioned, a past guest. He was back in episode 42, which I believe was March of 2020, where he was on to introduce the concept of heart rate variability and did a really nice job of talking about how it can be used to make your training experience better. Um, you know, some of the evidence for it, some of the limitations of it. And, uh, you know, heart rate variability has been a tool that's used by quite a number of folks. And uh, if you're interested. Um, go back and listen to that episode, but it is not required for the conversation we're going to have, because what we're going to talk about today is still related to HRV, but it's uh, you don't really need all of that background necessarily to get uh, something useful out of the show. So today's topic of conversation is going to be about a new, um, I don't know what I would call it, a technique, I suppose, in, um, in again trying to improve that athletic experience and make us better athletes so that's a very general explanation and uh, we'll obviously dive more deeply into it but before we do that I want to say thank you to Marco for coming on the show Uh, and um, did I miss anything in the introduction uh, Marco that you want to you want to plug I know it's been more than a year since we spoke Uh, what's going on in your world
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. I'd say, yeah, everything, you know, sounds good and looks good. Uh, Happy to be here and to talk a bit about the work we've been doing um, in the context of biofeedback and HRV more broadly in the past year since we last talked.
1: Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, work you've done in the past year, our uh, our most listened to episode, and by the way, Marco, you're, you're number three on that list, but uh, most <laughs> listened to episode with, was with uh, our mutual friend, Bruce Rogers, about another application of HRV. And that is, of course, uh, determining the aerobic threshold or the lower threshold. And that one's definitely worth listening to, listeners. <laughs> uh, so that one's a little bit more recent. Yeah. 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 True. Great episode. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, uh, and a really useful application of HRV. But um, yeah, let's talk about biofeedback. So this is a concept that, to me, is brand spanking new, and maybe that's because it is actually a fairly new concept, uh, at least in the athletic uh, context. So um, why don't we start with uh, introducing what it is, and then we can move on to how it can be used.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe just briefly, we can just try to contextualize it a bit in the context of, you know, HRV and what we talked about in the past, so that, you know, people Mm -hmm. might be more familiar with, you know, measuring HRV in the morning or, you know, using an aura ring or a whoop or device that measures during the night things like that so that's what we normally consider an assessment of resting physiology so you know you measure or either during the night or fasting in the morning and you quantify physiological stress level mm-hmm. and you know how different aspects of you know training and lifestyle have an impact on your physiology and uh, this obviously Key, you know, to understand different stressors, physiological responses, and making changes. When we talk about biofeedback, however, we don't talk about that. It's a basically a different uh, practice okay. in which we do deep breathing exercises, um, which we can also quantify. With HIV measurements. So as we do deep breathing exercises, we measure HIV and we can use this information as feedback. Maybe we can talk a bit about that in a minute. Yes. But the goal of these exercises is not really to assess physiology and you know to determine a level of physiological stress or chronic stress, but it is really to try to basically influence your physiology with a positive stressor. Hmm. So you can see it a bit as a form of training, right? So you work out to lead to certain adaptations, and this could also be seen that way. You do these deep breathing exercises, you can quantify it with HRV, but this, as you do it, it does not tell you, you know, your level of physiological stress, like you would do in a morning measurement or a night measurement, but it's just a way in which you could, for example, train your parasympathetic system and improve your HRV um, as you keep practicing. Does that
1: make sense? Oh, that that's a that's a lovely explanation because uh, I really like the you know the the framing of thinking about uh, biofeedback practice as training, you know, because that's that's exactly that's exactly what it is. It's not training, you know, it's not training your physiology necessarily, but it's training your you know, your, your central nervous system. Um, yeah, that's uh, that makes a ton of sense. So um, can you describe the mechanism behind it? So, so how does it work, and how does how does you mentioned that there is a, uh, an effect of breathing on your heart rate variability? So, how how do those two components fit together?
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's you know exactly why, for example, um, when we tell people to measure first thing in the morning, we tell them, okay, do not do the breathing in that moment; just breathe naturally, um, because you know as you do the breathing, you influence your HIV in a way that basically you increase it acutely, right? Um, And that's the whole point of the biofeedback exercises. So while, you know, there are different physiological processes, I don't think um, we have, you know, a perfect understanding of why or how exactly this mechanism work in terms of influencing the autonomic nervous system and the central nervous system. But there are different pathways that have been proposed uh, that are impacted by doing these kind of exercises in a way that have certainly an acute effect at the physiological level, something that you can measure, for example, with HRV Mm -hmm. as you do deep breathing, you know, acutely your HRV increases a lot. And that's due to the Basically, uh, deep breathing exercise that uh, would um, stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system. But um, other aspects there could be could also be relevant. Um, the body reflex is mentioned often. It's basically the mechanism that you know uh, maintains homeostasis between heart rate and blood pressure, so that you know things again uh, are in balance. So that you know when you do deep breathing, when you inhale, your heart rate instantaneously increases and when you exhale your heart rate decreases. So this through this process um, it is also thought to train the body reflex so that basically you get a bit better at these adjustments hmm. and that also at managing blood pressure, which is why uh, you know there have been studies showing for example that uh, in hypertensive uh, people with hypertensive disorders um, they can get better. Uh, their blood pressure gets better as they practice biofeedback. Because probably you are strengthening the baroreflex as well,
2: hmm.
0: uh, and maybe not only that, and the parasympathetic system, or how these um, systems also influence the central nervous system, as you mentioned. Um, you know, all these pathways between heart and brain are bidirectional, right? Mm-hmm. So there is some some aspects that we clearly understand of you know how they central nervous system controls the autonomic nervous system. So, you know, from the brain to the heart, but then actually, you know, the main nerve of the parasympathetic system, the vagus nerve, which is, you know, innervating the heart and slowing down the heart as as you exhale, um, you know, as also a lot of uh, communication that goes the other way to the brain that then, you know, Hmm. captures this information. And these changes could also have then a direct effect. Uh, you know, again, either acutely as you do it, or chronically as you build up your practice uh, on the central nervous system.
1: That's that's fascinating. So it sounds like there is a, a potentially a very broad uh, range of applications for this kind of training. Um, and, and I appreciate the fact that it's still in its early stages, maybe of, of research and that, you know, we, we certainly don't know everything. And I mean, I don't think we know everything about anything, so that's a pretty safe bet. Uh, but, uh, in, in what we do know, uh, you know, in the evidence that we do have, uh, what do you think are the, pro- some of the, you know proven or even like suggested or even possible applications for endurance uh, athletes in in using this technique so i'll preface it with this you you talked a little bit about the ability of deep breathing exercises and we'll get to the mechanics of the deep breathing in a little bit, but the the possibility of these exercises in influencing heart rate, heart rate variability, potentially some cognitive effects. So, um, you know, what's what's the value for for the athletic population, for the endurance athletes that uh, listen to the show?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think um, you know from from literature. That's uh, you know if we go back to the beginning of this kind of work, you know, as as you mentioned, it's quite recent, right? It's mm-hmm. um, some you know some of that is due to the fact that um, certain type of technology is required, and what I mean is that the difference between biofeedback and other forms of you know deep breathing and meditation or mindfulness that have been studied maybe for a much longer time mm-hmm. is that the whole point of biofeedback is that there is some sort of some sort of feedback from the body that you can see Mm. and, you know, um, and act on. For example, you know, when we talk about heart rate variability biofeedback, the minimum kind of information that we need to see is our instantaneous heart rate. So that, you know, Mm -hmm. again, when we breathe in, it increases, we breathe out, it decreases. And then by seeing that, we can try to, you know, uh, do this deep breathing exercises so that we basically maximize these oscillations. Uh, And, you know, that's just uh, the feedback aspect is key to the method. Um, and, you know, mm. now technology is uh, is better and we can use these systems that provide instantaneous feedback and, you know, using phones and sensors. And some of the early studies were in the early 2000s in which, uh, you know, there were, let's say, less practical tools, but still things you could use in the lab. Um, and, you know, people would get in uh, they would find their resonant frequency, something again we can talk about a bit later when we talk about the tools, but basically it's just mm-hmm. this special, let's say, breathing frequency that amplifies these oscillations. And then they would practice for um, something like between 20 and 40 minutes, typically uh, two sessions of 20 minutes per day. And this was applied to many different. Um, Conditions, let's say, you know, maybe people from suffering from anxiety or depression disorders, and in these populations, there is, I would say, stronger evidence of the positive effects of these techniques, okay. which have then been employed a lot, also in, um, let's say, athletic populations. So you know, for obviously the ability to emotionally self-regulate is key, also in sports,
2: mm-hmm.
0: but. I think the stronger evidence is for types of sports that are a bit different from endurance sports for example um things where you need you know you have some sort of single action um moment let's think about you know playing golf when you have to you know Mm -hmm. um shoot basically and then or yeah even shooting uh you know in uh, sports where you have to do that component um, or, you know, if you think about even, uh, team sports, you might have penalty kicks or, uh, you know, um, free throws and things like that. So for those kind of moments, I think there is more evidence that, you know, helping the athlete self-regulate through this practice can lead to better outcomes, mm-hmm. even though most of these studies are, um, very small, let's say often it's, you know, case studies with a few athletes is not really um yeah, it's not really a, you know a large population in endurance athletes, I would say that uh you know you don't have much of that um specific you know kind of self-regulation in which you have that you know split second decision to make because you know normally you keep going for I don't know one to ten hours <laughs> something like that um but that, I think you know, there are other, other aspects that could be relevant um, if you think about how, simply how higher stress puts you at higher risk of injury, for example. Mm-hmm. So maybe your ability to better regulate stresses will not be key to you know, any, again, split-second decision, but might be in general better for your health. So I think you know, it's very difficult also to understand or frame. Um, you know, the context and and the outcomes as uh, yeah, so many factors play a role, and stress is key to you know what you do when you exercise. totally but at the same time, some of these methods have shown yeah good you know good uh, results in terms of stress management um, and this kind of outcomes. I really, I
1: really take your point. I like that explanation that there isn't, there isn't that one moment in, uh, in endurance sports. Usually there isn't unless, unless you're at the very pointy end and, you know, you have to go <laughs> when people are going. And so, uh, and that might be a difficult time to, <laughs> to do deep breathing when you're in the finish line <laughs> sprint of a race or something. Um, but uh, yeah, but to your point about, you know, it's, it's impact on, on potentially on general health and especially on stress management, that's massive because, you know, we talk a lot about, and we talk in our last conversation about the role of non-training stress on, you know, training effectiveness, right? And so Mm -hmm. there are the theories that uh, all stress is cumulative to some extent, whether it's physical or psychological or mental or nutritional, which I guess is physical as well. Um, And so if you, you know, if you have a reliable – means of mitigating stress or managing it somehow that's that's a huge win in in training context because then potentially you can do more training and we all know that for almost all of us if we can do more training without over over overcooking it over stressing ourselves and then we become fitter on race day so even if we can't use it necessarily on race day then uh, it's still you know I think it still has a potentially very broad application to endurance folks as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's, I think, uh, different aspects there where we could even try maybe to quantify um, the impact uh, differently, not directly on performance, but, you know, as we talked about using, for example, HRV as a measurement of stress, then, you know, can this practice impact, for example, your baseline HRV in a way that you have a positive response Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, potentially, uh, a higher capacity to handle additional stress, as you mentioned, and maybe, you know, either take up more training or take less risks with your regular training. That's it. Um, so I think those aspects are, are really interesting and maybe less explored, right? It is um, obvious from research on biofeedback that acutely as you practice, you have all these physiological changes because they are driven by the deep breathing. Mm-hmm. But do they last, mm-hmm. right? Or how long? should you practice or for how many weeks so that you see changes in physiology? And do you see changes in physiology? Maybe, you know, maybe it just doesn't happen that way that you would not have an increase in HRV by doing this this practice for many weeks, but that still does not mean that there are no other benefits. For example, we could even, you know, argue that um HIV has a strong genetic component and your baseline might not change that much from what it is apart from the acute responses to stress on a daily basis mm-hmm. but maybe um you know your values stay more within your optimal range over the days and over the weeks instead of having you know more swings which typically are you know um indicative of a poor stress response maybe your data is just more stable because your balance things better so i think even the way we look at potential changes is something that uh you know it's as many nuances that maybe are not fully considered um in literature so far so those are some of the aspects i think that are really interesting and and we might be learning more uh you know over the years with tools like the ones we built and others that are out there
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's stay on that topic a little bit, and uh, and the, I want to just ask briefly about the state of the research. So, uh, you know, we've talked about the fact that there's not there's not a ton of it out there. Uh, currently, are you aware or are you involved in any any work uh, maybe with your tools uh, in in studying this? Because I know that one of the uh, one of the applications I believe from just the HRV for Training app, or certainly the Logger app that we talked about with uh, with Bruce Rogers and the DFA Alpha One analysis, was to use the data. Uh, in research, so is that something that you guys are actively pursuing?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think uh, you know, especially for these more new aspects where we know so little about you know expected changes as people do this kind of practice. I think it's really mm-hmm. interesting to look at some of these aspects. So we did look at some already. For example, um, the change in HRV during the sessions as you keep practicing so for example we saw that um you know people practicing um you know even just a few minutes per day but consistently uh, for many weeks would see an increase in their hrv during practice after about four or five weeks of practicing Okay. if this was something that you know was new for them right so People could come to the app from you know, just another app or being expert meditators or any sort of thing or experts in biofeedback, but people could just be, you know okay, let's try this. So the ones that you know, are trying it for the first time and are new to the practice, they would see these kind of changes. So I think this is you know, interesting because it could speak maybe to that initial training of you know, either the body reflex or the parasympathetic system so that you can quantify it as you breathe. Because the breathing is controlled, right? So it's always the same. Mm-hmm. But then, if your HIV increases during this process, then you know this basically these oscillations and your system is just responding a bit differently as you practice. So I think some of these aspects, uh, you know, are really interesting, uh, interesting, and we're looking into it. But I think then, what is even more interesting, maybe, is also how this links back to. Uh, you know baseline changes and resting physiology, and not only physiology during practice, mm-hmm. um, or to other aspects of research. Like, let's uh, I don't know look at for example post-exercise HRV. Okay, you know this can be useful to quantify uh, cardiovascular stress on the system, right? So there is um, some interesting research in there. For example, you know you do a high-intensity session, and that. Will leave you, um, let's say, more stress, physiologically speaking, in a way that, for example, it takes much longer to your HRV to go back to normal. Okay. And you know, maybe with this kind of exercises, in which you stimulate again the parasympathetic system and potentially recover post-exercise, maybe you could even speed up that process, basically. Fascinating. Uh, you know, help the body mm. recover that way and. I don't think there's any research on this, so, you know, just open questions that uh, I think we can finally try to address uh, in different studies using these tools.
1: That's really that's really interesting and exciting, and I I, I obviously hadn't considered the uh, the possibility of using biofeedback after a tough exercise because um, for me my my personal issue, and I know it's one that's shared by by you know some of the folks I coach and some of the folks I've talked to, is uh, if you especially do uh, a high intensity session in the evening, especially later in the evening, it can uh, impact sleep, right? It can impair sleep quite a bit, yeah, and sure. uh, be, you know we all know how important sleep is. You know we we've, we've I think we've beaten that topic to death on this show. Um, and, uh, if you're, if you have a, you know, a tool that may have some, some efficacy in improving sleep after high intensity interval work in the evening, I think that would be, you know, tremendously useful to a large uh, percentage of the population because, you know, I can't train in the morning because I take care of my kids in the morning. So then my my (laughs) training time may be in the evening. And then if I want to do quality, that's my only time to do it. And, uh, And that's always, not always, but that often has stopped me from doing it or has made me change my training um, to, you know, to account for the fact that I don't sleep well when I train really hard late in the evening and then I need sleep. And so this could be really, really kind of cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know. And even coming back to the research and your feedback i think there are also you know associations shown regardless of training of you know improved the sleep quality subjectively um as people do this kind of exercises so you know i think uh as we try to have always you know in real life an approach that is uh you know trying to tackle the problem from many angles like we don't isolate mm-hmm. single components and try just one thing so you know as we throw many things at it to try to optimize outcomes. I think, you know, it, it, it cannot hurt to just do some deep breathing post exercise and high intensity exercise to down-regulate the system Stimulate parasympathetic activity, uh, and then you know potentially have that positive impact both on sleep and recovery.
1: That is that is super cool. Uh, that's something that I'm going to start doing now that uh, now that I know <laughs> that this could possibly help me. So let let's talk about. Uh, we've hinted at it a couple times, but let's talk about the actual technique and the tools involved. And so maybe you, if you want to start uh, in the more general sense, and then and narrow it down, and we can talk. We can certainly talk about the uh, the app that uh, HRV for Training makes.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So the technique is really simple. It's just about deep breathing. And that normally means uh, breathing at 0.1 hertz, which just means uh, basically six times per minute. So Mm -hmm. that's something that you can, you know, you could even do it Without any technology, right? You just need some sort of pacer, or you can count even and do your breathing that way. Sure. Then again, the biofeedback aspect would be that you can actually see how your body responds to this exercise in terms of you know your instantaneous heart rate, and that can help you you know in different ways. One, for one thing is just you know being able to do the exercise correctly. You know, sometimes just seeing the feedback and, you know, the expected output is very simple. It's just your, you would see a sort of a sinusoidal pattern with your heart rate going up and your heart rate going down. And then, you know, if you don't see that, it means something is you're know, just maybe distracted or not breathing correctly. So I think the feedback can just keep you engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, sometimes for certain types of people, it, the data can just be, Helpful in you know uh, staying motivated and again engaged in doing the thing. Yes. Uh, more than it can be, you know, with other forms of uh, practice that eventually might have a similar um, impact on on your physiology and you know thinking anything that is uh, mindfulness or meditation or all sort of practice, uh, practices that require basically slow deep breathing uh so that's you know as simple as that the exercise the duration i think it's also um let's say that is important but we don't know exactly you know what's what's best i think like in most things it depends uh (laughs) and you know it's also something you need to find time for right Mm -hmm. so uh yeah i wouldn't Set um, you know very high requirements, which is done sometimes. But you know, if the original protocols still uh, indicate that you should do two sessions of twenty minutes each per day, so that's a fair amount of time. And you know, especially mm-hmm. if you need to start,
2: that's a huge. amount know, allocating,
0: of allocating yeah, exactly. Allocating forty minutes to something that you haven't done ever before, and you know, just sitting there <laughs> breathing can be you know sometimes. Um, more Difficult than it sounds, let's say, and then so, yes, absolutely. Other studies have looked also at very different protocols that are maybe more practical. Uh, so going down to just a few minutes, three minutes, maybe multiple times per day, things like that. Um, you know, now we've had the product out for a bit more than a year, maybe. Uh, so had plenty of feedback from people, and I think they go all the way. There's people doing the two per 420 minutes, there's people doing just a few minutes and still, you know, at least subjectively feeling the benefit of, uh, you know, the process. And it's just a way sometimes to, you know, disconnect maybe from work or other things in our mind and then, you know, take a step back mm-hmm. uh, and take then a little get break. back into it. Yeah, exactly. Just get back to things maybe, um, yeah, in a, in a different mental state, which can be obviously helpful, at uh, least work wise so yeah all sort of mm-hmm. you know different progress can be can be employed i think uh still if we want to see certain changes that you know, or uh try to relate our practice to what has been shown in research studies then we should try to build maybe towards those you know 20 minutes or 40 minutes um if possible as you know still those are the ones that all the studies use so mm-hmm. That's how we can then try to translate what is happening there to to our own experience.
1: Cool. I have a, I have a couple of comments. So first, just uh, anecdotal. I've uh, I've done a, a, some very very haphazard, let's say, uh, mindfulness practice in my you know in, in the last few years, and uh, I find that it helps, at least in terms of like mood and. Uh, and uh you know overall well-being but it's it's tough you know especially when you're starting out even if even the best kind of guided meditation apps they definitely help but it's it's quite difficult to stay focused um and i find that you know to your point uh marco when when you have something you know some kind of some kind of feedback <laughs> directly a feedback here it is a little bit easier to stay present and pay attention to what you're doing um and then maybe that speaks to my my own kind of distracted mindset that i need i need to be i need to be told like is am i doing a good job is this is this working uh, you know kind of that that need you know maybe unhealthy need for instantaneous feedback um <laughs> but it is easier i do agree that it is easier to uh to pay attention to breathing using um biofeedback than with just uh you know traditional mindfulness meditation um and then when you were when you were going over the uh, the uh, the explanation of where you're where you're looking for studies, uh, what you're lo- what you're trying to study, I'm curious if you because you have this app that's HRV for training that probably lots of people use that is your you know as you mentioned in the beginning of the show that's your measurement app that's your assessment tool. Um, And then you have this biofeedback app, which is, you know, kind of trying to affect uh, physiology to some extent. Uh, Are you connecting the accounts from those people and saying like, oh, you practice using the biofeedback app and your HRV does X, you know? And are you able to draw any kind of like, I don't know if it's big enough for big data, but any kind of conclusions from, uh, from from those correlations or do you see any correlations there?
0: Yeah, so at, at the moment we are not doing that. So the systems are separate. Okay. Uh, but in the biofeedback app, though, people can take also spot check measurements. So we introduced that a bit later. Uh, but so there is a way there to also acquire, you know, different, uh, let's say, baseline assessments, either before the session, after the session, Interesting. Uh, in the morning. So I think people are experimenting in different ways. And yeah, I think for sure at a certain point we'll try to look at. Possible changes there, um, you know. I think it's one of the things that are very difficult to um, to generalize because of so many different factors potentially playing a role when we start looking at months of data. Even just seasonality, right? Changes in heart rate and HRV because it's a different time of the year. Um, yeah, so you know everything that is physiology. It's very easy to analyze acutely, so close to a strong stressor, uh, you know, it can be training and then the measurement in the morning, it can be biofeedback and, you know, the HIV as you do it or right after or right before. Um, you know, as soon as you have, as long as you have an anchor point in there, the stressor, mm-hmm. then you can see our physiology changes and so that's seem interesting. But then when you stretch that two months, you know, literally anything could happen. So I think, I don't know, the yes, my view of this has changed a bit. Um, and I'm mo- mostly interested really in just empowering the user with the tools so that they can find out because they know everything. You know, it's, it's you, it's your life, you know the context, you know what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. And then by measuring and experimenting, um, you can find what works for you. Is this technique, you know, helpful to you? Uh, Do you see changes in your physiology, things like that? I think then you can answer those questions for yourself, but it might be still very difficult to answer them more at a population level due to so many things happening and maybe not being just tracked or contextualized in a way that is meaningful when we step back and, and don't have that information.
1: What's really refreshing in talking to you, Marco, is that a lot of the times when I ask you a question, you'll say, "I don't know, we don't know. There's no evidence. There's no like, who this might work. We don't know if this works." And it seems, you know, uh, on the surface, that's like, "Oh, that's kind of irritating." I'm like, "That's I wish I had a, you know, give me an answer." But I would r- much, you know, much rather hear that. I think that's a that's a much more honest response to things than, than sometimes we hear from, especially like, you know, some of the some of the people with a, a lot of money invested in in uh, sports technology. <laughs> who will say our technology will do all of this stuff for you and if you just wear our thing or take our pill or do whatever you'll become superhuman and that's like and that pervades <laughs> the the environment that we live in and it's you know it's something that <laughs> I rail against a lot on this show and it's it's really nice to to have someone you know talk about the fact that it's nope we don't know and maybe maybe <laughs> not and there's some evidence here but it's it's not very strong or or whatever the case may be so <laughs> uh kudos to you for that <laughs>
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. Really appreciate that. Yeah, it's 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 a much more honest conversation. Yeah, yeah, I think might explain why sales are not so great, <laughs> <I'm> not <laughs> the best salesman. But still, you know, I really enjoy the work and you know talking to people like you. And I think, like obviously, there is a lot to gain. You know, measuring physiology and understanding how it works. So I think the more honest we are about what it can or cannot do, or what maybe we don't understand due to the confounding factors, then, you know, the more these things will eventually be taken seriously. Uh, you know, over-promising is maybe yeah uh, at the beginning you can have a good run, but, you know, in the long term, you know, people will figure things out. So it's just maybe better to mm-hmm. to try to start this way. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think like even in a from a business perspective and I'm terrible at business I I no, no one should take my advice <laughs> for it but like the worst thing you can do as a brand is is you know overcommit and underdeliver right like if you promise the world yeah, and sounds- your stuff sucks and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do or it misleads people that's I don't know, I, I would imagine that's a quick exit, but I, guess, I suppose there are examples where that's not the case, where people make their millions and then they walk away and they don't care, um, <laughs> you know. For <laughs> sure. There's, there's okay. different ways to, to go about it. Um, but to to kind of circle back to um, one one concept that you introduced that I want you to talk a little bit more about, and that is your resonant frequency of breathing. And you mentioned that for most people, it's it's about 0.1 hertz or 10 breaths per minute. Um, so just a very basic question first, um, Is that a complete breath cycle? So inhale, exhale?
0: It's, uh, yeah, basically in 10 seconds you inhale and exhale. So let's say if you have a 50-50 ratio, then you'll have inhale five seconds, exhale five seconds. That makes 10 seconds, and then you do that six times in a minute. And that's, let's say, what works for most people. So in general, this is the frequency where your breathing rate and your heart rate really get aligned and everything is synchronized and you have the highest oscillations in instantaneous heart rate, um, which means that you know when you breathe out, your heart rate is going to be very low and then when you breathe in, it's going to be very high. You can have differences between high and low of you know, 40, 50 beats per minute, which is like Whoa! Insane, if you think about it, like, yeah, like that's if insanely I do high. I've, yeah, I was yeah, gonna say exactly.
2: for
1: my, <laughs> never seen those kind of swings. I think, like, if I if I think about it, my swings are probably closer. I think maybe the most I've seen is is like fifteen or eighteen, like definitely less than twenty. Okay, uh,
0: yeah, that's 40 you know, wild. That's, also, very personal, I think. Like, my uh-huh. baseline HRV is not particularly high. It's quite, it's very normal for, you know, my age group and everything. But when I do the breathing exercise, normally it fluctuates between, uh, you know, maybe 40 45 to 80 85. And I think this, huh. um, yeah, so you can see these large oscillations. And, you know, similarly, at, I would say at the population level, this has been shown a few times. Um, so yeah, there can be like wild variations, um, in instantaneous heart rate, when you do it at your SNL frequency, there can be otherwise lower variations, but maybe what we were saying before, you know, how your HRV would improve as during the session, uh, in the first four or five weeks of practice. So those oscillations would then. Get a little larger um, as you do that, because that probably <clears throat> would be quantified um, then also by a slightly higher RMSSD. So, the typical metric we use to quantify HRV uh, over the session. Right. So, this uh, coming back to the, the resonant frequency, this frequency is not always exactly the same for everyone. So, that's why um, there is normally a test to try to find which one is best for you. So that's something we have also in the the app, the HIV for biofeedback app, so that, you know, the first time you use it, you do the test, and basically the app will tell you, hey, you should breathe at six per minute, like everybody else, or maybe you should breathe at you know, (laughs) 5.5 or 6.5, or, you know, there's a bit of, um, yeah, I would say a rather small range, but still, um, let's say the experts in the field, they recommend, you know, to test frequencies at least from four and a half, maybe to seven, uh, instead of just the typical six, because people have you know different ways of doing that,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then you can train uh, always at that frequency, which is ideal for you, and that should bring uh, you know just larger benefits uh, in your specific case.
1: Right, and that's that was that was my follow up question. Is like I noticed that there is a test in the app to to determine that. So that's that's really cool. So that um, how does the app uh, determine that that frequency? Is it just looking at the maximal uh, heart rate swings?
0: Yeah. So we tried different things and looking at the swings, looking at the actual uh, HRV at different frequencies, mm-hmm. um, looking at how the peak in the frequencies changes as you breathe at different frequencies, so that you know you might generate a higher peak in a very specific frequency and let's say different ways eventually to analyze the same thing which is you know what frequency generates this highest uh, variability let's say mm-hmm. and then uh, yeah there is no also there there is no let's say um, clear established method that you know you should Use this method to determine which one it is your resonant frequency. But you can, again, look at various aspects, and that's what we try to do, and then estimate it for a person so that the breathing then will be guided um, at that frequency. Another aspect there, you know, that we touched on briefly was just the inhale, exhale, the ratio between the two. That seems to be less important than uh, uh, the resonant frequency. So, Hmm. It seems that from what has been published so far, um, by that you mean like like the
1: the relative the relative duration of inhale exhale. Is that what you mean?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you know the from what we have seen so far, I think the resonant frequency matters. So the let's say the gains are bigger if you breathe at correct frequency, Mm -hmm. but the inhale exhale duration seems to be less important as long as. The exhale is at least as long as the inhale. So, you know, 50 50 mm-hmm. or a slightly longer exhale. Um, yeah, in my experience, normally, I, you know, I tell people just use what is um, that you find the most, you know, comfortable and convenient as you do it because you don't want the breathing, you know, to feel weird or mechanical or anything. Um, some people prefer, uh, prefer a longer exhale, and that's totally fine. Um and yeah, now that it is also configurable in the app, I think, you know, maybe in the future we can also try to see if we see hmm. any differences in, in HRB based on the exact pattern, but it's not something we have we have looked into yet.
1: Hmm. Got it. So uh you know, we you've mentioned several times in this conversation that there's still a lot of things that we don't know about the uh uh, you know, about biofeedback in general and its applications and its long-term effects. Um, if you, you know, if you had your, your magic wand in a perfect world, if there was like one thing that you would love to know the answer to, uh, like how, how the the relationship between biofeedback and X, what would that thing be? What would you love to know tomorrow?
0: (laughs) Um, I think maybe something that is uh, of broader interest you know not only sports but across applications is to maybe trying to understand how does the practice or the effectiveness of the practice links to basically the type of person you are right If you're a person that is you know particularly anxious and you know and maybe you uh, have some trouble sleeping or disconnecting and you know, thinking you're always ruminating and thinking about work as you get to sleep and things like that. Um, Is that then more helpful to you with respect to maybe someone that doesn't have this profile or Mm -hmm. issues? I think that could also clear up some of the inconsistencies maybe in literature because, you know, we get a bunch of people and run an analysis, but, you know, maybe there is a huge difference based on, you know, how you process stress in general, basically. So I think that's one of the key aspects that are not really, um, yeah, thoroughly investigated.
1: What you're doing is crazy hard because like the more I think about it or the more I talk to you, the more I appreciate the fact. It's because there's so many factors and like, you know, setting up a proper experiment where you control for a lot of these factors is just, it might be, it must be a nightmare. Like you have to have massive populations in order to get, you know, to get a decent kind of signal to noise ratio because, you know, you just pointed out something that I've never, I didn't think about before. It's like, yeah, how do you process stress? Like, are you uh, an anxious person or not? Because that would almost certainly throw off some of these effects. and so yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly and you know some of the studies about biofeedback actually they look more at that than changes in resting physiology for example Mm -hmm. they would look at okay you do the biofeedback and then we put you through some sort of stress test and then how do you respond to the stress test Mm. and that has been shown also that you know people practicing they would have a better response to the stress test uh you know either I don't know going back to normal quicker or you know just having uh yeah a better response and maybe better performance to the test with respect to people not doing it despite no changes maybe in resting physiology because you know that's just something that there might be stronger um factors playing a role or maybe the whole exercise is just really about giving you the ability to Emotionally, self-regulate in you know quicker and better way yeah. when you are challenged by the stressor and not at rest. So, I think yeah, there's a, a lot there to to understand.
1: Yeah, that's that that that's super interesting, and I mean it's it's incredibly topical, especially with you know kind of the the potential mental health epidemic that we're going to have after, after the COVID lockdowns, yeah, which sure. we don't, we don't know what the knock-on effects are just yet for, you know, people of all ages. Um, yeah. and this is something when, uh, when I was, uh, I was listening to a podcast on uh, John Thornham's flow faster with flow, uh, show with uh, Dr. Penny Werther. She talked about self-regulation a lot. So she works with athletes with the Canadian Olympic uh, committees, various, you know, various sports. And she, that was, that was a term that she used quite a bit that she was talking about about just being able to you know bring yourself back to baseline or to control emotion and she works with you know the kind of athletes that you mentioned who may have uh, a better use case like team sports folks or or you know individual sports where it's like you know like you you, use shooting or golf uh where self-regulation is hugely important i mean it's still important in endurance athletics but maybe to a different extent but uh um, I really like that answer because in, in general population self-regulation' is huge. like just going through your day like <laughs> me you know me, me trying not to not, not to get too annoyed at my kids when they're not listening to me. I mean I, I could definitely use uh, better self-regulation in that context. never mind, never mind doing a vo2 max interval, right? So
0: yeah, yeah for sure. And you know I think those aspects are, are really key and you know even in myself, I see more. Um, yeah, those kind of effects, uh, just even psychologically, right. I, you know, I haven't seen any large physiological changes, but I practice every day and, you know, I do feel like, uh, it's just a way, you know, again, to step back and then, you know, just reassess and then get back to the things you're doing maybe with a different mindset. And then when you face the stresses, anything that maybe would upset you or, uh, you know, I'm back on Twitter, so I have that opportunity every five minutes to get upset <laughs> randomly. <laughs> so, you know, then you can just, uh, you know, how yeah. sometimes the things we do influence the person we are, right? Or, or we want to be or we become in a way that uh, you just think about it. Maybe it's like, yeah, I do all this stuff now. I'm not just gonna be upset for this kind of crap I just read. I'm just gonna, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Step back, and this is not my problem. <laughs> so, you know, just a simple <laughs> it's, example, that's but totally. It's, it. yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I oh, think, I think it's very topical, because I think we're all
1: we're all, <laughs> yeah, we all have the opportunities to get pissed off during our daily lives at a, at a number that's of different sure. things, and it's it it definitely takes a lot of work not to not to go down that path, which is never productive. Um. So Marco this has been a this has been an awesome chat. I hope it's uh, I hope uh, the next time we talk isn't in like 16 months and uh and you know <laughs> you, you're you're working on something else that's super cool that I want to talk to you about um and and we can have you back on. So listen thank you so much for for taking the time today and uh for for joining us and uh, taking us through this really, you know, really interesting, certainly still very much an emerging field of study, but something that uh, I think folks can uh, can get something useful out of, even if there isn't a very strong, you know, uh, body of evidence to support it just yet, that it's it's one of those things that, you know, I, I, I classify in the the, it's probably all upside you're not gonna like there's not there's not <laughs> not much of a downside risk in 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 trying biofeedback because like it's not like you're taking some weirdo supplement or or or, or training in some in some new way um and it's uh I, the app is is quite inexpensive and available it's ios and um just
0: ios for this one yeah
1: okay Yeah. So sorry, sorry, Android users. But if you have an iPhone, uh, download the HRV for training biofeedback app. It's, uh, it's pretty fun to use. And uh, if nothing else, you'll, uh, you know, you'll, uh, you'll do a little bit of practice, uh, some deep breathing practice. And that's, that's been shown time and again to improve your life in some capacity, for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cannot agree more with uh, what you just said. So thank you so much for having me. (laughs) And it was great chatting.
1: Yeah. Well, again, my pleasure. And uh, listeners, as always, if you've enjoyed the show, uh, do give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, tell your friends, share the episodes. Uh, because that's how we, we grow our audience, which has uh, steadily been growing. We haven't done any any massive leaps recently. I guess maybe not since uh, since our chat with uh, with Bruce again. That was a big breakthrough for us. But uh, yeah, the way we uh, the way we are discovered is uh, is when you tell your friends about something you learn here, and uh, hopefully they'll they'll check us out too. So thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.